We have always existed, and we are still here. Telling the stories of those slung dead, we won't disappear. We're taking the pen back into our own hands. We live and we breathe and we keep creating, taking a stand. History is queerer than you. Welcome to the Making Queer History podcast, where we connect our queer history to our queer present. I'm Laura. And I'm Will. And today we're going to be talking about Don Langley Hall. Which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. Don Langley Hall is a very cool person. Yeah, generally we talk about pretty cool people. And this is like an interesting figure, so we're going to hear about a lot of drama throughout their life. She's just a cool, interesting figure that we're going to learn a lot about. In news for this month... Everything's messy. Everything's messy. COVID's still going where we are right now. I'm not sure if COVID will still be as intense worldwide as it is right now when um, our non-patrons hear this because our patrons get this a month earlier than everyone else. So they'll be hearing this when COVID is still horrifying and everyone will be like, yes, we are going through that. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to not talk about it that much because we don't have much to say. We really don't. We're, we got nothing. Yeah, stay inside. Be careful. Be safe. Wash your hands. Wash your hands. Also, take walks if you can. Social distance while taking walks. Take care of your mental health. That's important. Mm-hmm. Unless you live in like a very intense area where everyone's out right now. Then like take as few walks as possible because other people are making it difficult for you. I'm so sorry if they are doing that. Any making queer history news? A lot of making queer history news. So I think I can officially say this because it's going to start happening next month and like, and that's like a couple days away. So Dean is going to be doing something really big for Pride Month and it's going to be on our Patreon. Wow. And y'all are going to see it. And I'm so excited for y'all to see it. I don't want to spoil it too much, but I will say one, keep your eyes out and two, just... Just, like, don't forget to appreciate Dean, okay? Dean does a lot of work. Shout out to Dean for being absolutely amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. So, so just keep that in mind as things are progressing throughout Pride Month. I know a lot of people are really disappointed right now because Pride is cancelled and Pride parades are cancelled in a lot of different places. But I think now is a really great time to sort of sit in that feeling and also consider the things that would make Pride a better experience for y'all. I know that we've talked a lot about, like, sort of the failures of Pride and Pride parades in our area. And I think this year is going to be a really great time for queer people to really like sort of take note take what they want and leave what they don't need anymore behind because we're gonna have basically a year off organizing a pride parade so let's take this extra year to organize the next one better to make it more of a riot to include less police because the police don't belong to pride they're the reason that pride exists because they were brutally attacking queer people and they continue to brutally attack queer people and if you don't think they continue to brutally attack queer people you're probably a white queer person and you should listen to the voices of your queer siblings who are also people of color so that's the hot take let's take this this month to talk about queerness as loudly as we can but also talk about how we can make pride month a better more inclusive experience for all of the queer community instead of one that just caters toward white cisgender rich gay men because <laughs> y'all know y'all know who it caters toward also i'm gonna i'm gonna give a hot take on here i i'm on tiktok I'm, i don't post videos on tiktok because no um but i'm on tiktok don't look for me but <laughs> I see a lot of younger queers 
which I love. I love being able to see the new generation of queer people sort of figure things out. There's all these amazing things that they're doing. Incredible activists, incredible things. But if you're a younger queer person, there there is this little discourse that is going on in the queer community on TikTok. Very young queer community. And I want to just like very gently give share some of my experiences with you. So maybe you can use those experiences and the history that I can bring forward with it to inform your choices now. Okay, so the discourse is, and I can already feel the older queer people being like, ooh, I remember when I had this thought. Because I think most queer people have gone through that phase. So... Let's just, let's just dive into it. Um, there's a group of, of younger queer people and probably a lot of older queer people who are either just entering the community or maybe they've been in the community for a while. I'm not going to judge. Who are saying that we should ban kink from pride. I can already feel a lot of queer people, younger and older, being like, ooh, for very different reasons. So I'm going to talk about what my thought on this is. And and I'm not going to judge y'all because we all take our time to get to different places. But here's the thing with pride. One, it's, we were talking about sex in some ways, specifically because if we don't talk about sex, that's how we get AIDS. Like, I'm sorry, it sounds really harsh to say that. But not talking about sex, not talking about safe sex, not talking about consent during sex, not talking about safely engaging in kinks, That's how you get dangerous sex. That's how you get it. That's how you get there. The way we get to dangerous sex or non-fully consensual kinks is by not talking about it. That's what sex positivity is for. And sex positivity, to be clear, does not mean you have to talk about sex. You as a person do not have to engage in the discussion of sex. You don't have to hang out with the kink crowd. If you don't want to talk about it, they probably don't want you there. That's cool. That's why they're a part of the parade and they're not the whole parade. I don't want to talk to you explicitly about anything, so I'm not going to talk about any bits or parts or anything, because, you know, this this is a, a podcast that's supposed to be for everyone, including, you know, younger people. But I think, I think there's a difference between being overly explicit and being open and honest. Because, yes, I, I, I 100% agree. If we start putting hardcore kinky porn on a jumbotron, I'm going to have some issues. But I literally saw these people giving, like, really nasty reactions to this, this gay man who was wearing one of those leather, leather harness shirts. And they're like, you can't be a pride. That's disgusting. Kids will, like, be horrified by that. I'm like, were you ever a kid? Like, do you remember being a child? Because I I walked through a gay pride parade when I was a child. Like, I, I didn't do it on purpose. My, my family accidentally let me there. And I was a little scandalized, I'm gonna be honest. But you know what I was scandalized by? Booty shorts. I was like, men can wear those? So should we be banning men who wear booty shorts from pride now? Because half of our people are gonna be fucking gone. I'm gonna tell you that right now. Just because a kid is scandalized by something doesn't mean it's something they should have never been exposed to. Specifically, younger me, this is what I'm talking about, younger me, who was born in a, like, raised into a fundamental Christian household was scandalized by gay people existing. Kids are scandalized sometimes by gay people existing. Just because it makes a child uncomfortable doesn't mean that the child should never see it. It doesn't mean that it's going to have a long-lasting negative impact. Exactly. Me being in that, well, me seeing that gay pride parade, I wasn't in it, had a really positive impact on me, actually. Uncomfortable doesn't equal bad. Sometimes uncomfortable is the feeling you get when something in you is changing. And change isn't always bad. So... I really don't want to feel too luxury here and you go through the process you need to go. But I would really like the the community that it is sort of reacting to kink being in pride to one, look at queer history a little bit more because kink history and queer history are, are connected. 
we're connected. Queer history is connected to most parts of history. And I think it would be really helpful for a lot of people to look at how we're connected to the queer, the, the king community. Two, I would really, really love for you to do some actual research into sex positivity and what it is and what it means and what the benefits of it are. Don't, don't go for sources of like those like angry cis straight white men who are like, I want to talk about my, you know, like sex life with my family, even when they beg me to stop. I'm saying this specifically because I know someone like that. Um, so don't, that's not the source you're looking for. Look for actual academic sources or people you respect in community who are sex positive and see what they're saying on the subject. Because sex positivity, like any other movement, has experts and it has dumbasses. And if you're going to follow this movement, I would also really, really love you to see where it's coming from. Because this is not from, this is not coming from a place of judgment. This is coming from a place of I went down this hole too. And when I went down it, I found the end of the, the tunnel. And do you know what it fucking was? It was TERFs. These are, this is what TERFs do. TERFs, this is a slow radicalizing TERF ideology. This is how TERFs radicalize you. Basically, they're going to tell you, they're going to start off with something like, we shouldn't talk about sex in all queer spaces. And you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense. It does make sense. You, you, we shouldn't. But they don't really point out that no one's really asking for that. The geek community isn't like forcing you to talk about sex. That's why, again, they have their own booths or part of the parade. They're not walking up to you and being like, what's your kink? They're not doing that. If they are doing that, then there's a real big problem. And you should talk to the organizers of Pride about it or to the organizers of the kink part of Pride. But, you know, you're like, okay, that makes sense. I agree. And then they're like, you know, the people who do this are always fill in the blank. And slowly they bring you more and more toward a very specific ideology. In my case, I stopped pretty quickly because they're like, you know the people who are like, talk about sex way too much? Asexual people. And I was like, that, that doesn't, doesn't seem right. And it's like, you know, it's just, it's horrible how asexual people have forced children to identify as asexual because most children are asexual to start out with. And I was like, hmm, there's something wrong with this ideology. And then we got to the point of realizing that not only were they aphobic, but they were TERFs. So I would really appreciate you gently following this trail objectively and being like, hmm, where does this come from? Because this this smells like TERFs to me. This is what TERFs do. They, they start out with something that seems so reasonable. A little clarification. If you don't know what TERF means. Oh yeah, thank you. It's, uh, it stands for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist. Yes. And they're my least favorite part of the feminist community. <laughs> yeah, and they're like a loose group. They don't really identify as a group mm-hmm. and they hate when you call them TERFs. But pretty much their entire ideology is we're feminists uh, and that means not including trans women in TERF mm-hmm. space. Yeah, because trans women are in their heads, not women. Which and is wrong. Which stupid. Is actively wrong. And also, I think it's an important point here to note that one of the biggest tools of TERFs is respectability politics, which this is. This is what I'm, I'm sorry, like I'm trying to be really gentle with you, but being like kinks can't be in pride anymore is respectability politics. You're doing it because you think it makes the outside world view our community as lesser than. You're not doing it because of our community. You're doing it because you think that it makes us look bad, mm-hmm. which is a horrible reason to kick someone out of a community because it makes the rest of the community look bad. And respectability politics is something that TERFs love to use because they're like, who's going to take feminism seriously if we include fill in the blank? And it's always a group that they're willing to exclude, but that group is somehow never cisgender, white, rich women. How did that happen? 
They're never willing to exclude them, the ones who, you know, make it harder for the rest of us. And also, often downplay and water down feminism. I also think it's important, or at least I like talking about the fact that this anti-sex positivity movement seems to have a lot of similarities to like puritanical, Mm -hmm. evangelical Mm -hmm. Christian beliefs. 100%. And it's so interesting to me because like you come into a queer space that's like trying to remove itself from all of these ground rules. Yeah. And then you have these other people who enter and they're like, oh, you got to put these rules back in. Yes. You got to you got to you got to follow these rules mm-hmm. um, because I say so. Because I say so. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And they get you because you were raised. And we were talking about this with me and Will. We were talking about this earlier. Generally, if you're living in the Western world, you were raised under the morality of puritanical Christian. Like, whether you were Christian or not, you were raised under the collective morality of it. Because Christianity forces its belief on, like, everyone. And whether you're atheist or whatever, if you're another religion that, like and hung out with a lot of people of that religion, then maybe you were able to be excluded from it. And congratulations, you win. You win the, you don't have to untangle these parts of yourselves. But if you grew up surrounded by Christianity, I really do think as a queer person, it's important to make sure your ideologies are not based in the morality of puritanical Christianity, and you're not enforcing those moralities onto other queer people. Because yeah, no, we see a lot of puritanical shit in the queer community. I, I still get mad about this. And, like, I grew up in a sort of puritanical Christian Mm -hmm. environment, and I had these beliefs about we should not talk about sex until, Mm -hmm. like, only a few years ago. Yeah. And I still find it incredibly uncomfortable and hard to talk about sex. Yeah. With people with anyone and so yeah just like keep that in mind try to unlearn those things because they're not gonna do you well and they're not gonna positively affect the communities you're part of i think one of the big moments for me in in, in sort of discovering that not talking to children about sex is, is not helping children have healthy sex lives as adults was the discussion of using proper terms for genitalia around kids and like using the correct words because the second and like consistently using the correct words because the second your kid comes home and like uses a word that you did not teach them you know someone was talking to them about it and if you gave consent on that person talking to your kids about sexuality in that way 100% that's fine but it's a really good signal to be like oh they're using a new word Where did they learn that word? And then you can have a discussion with them on that, whether they learned it in a safe environment or in an unsafe environment. And I really just do think honesty is really good for kids. And I think think if they're not ready to know things about sex, they often just don't absorb it. Like they just literally walk past the person in like a leather harness and are like, they must really like horses. And if they ask you about it, that's a great thing. You get to teach them in a safe, consensual area about something that they will experience later in life. And that's the whole thing. I think... That the best thing you can do is research and that see what your beliefs are. I just really want you to not be taking these beliefs on an instinctual gut feeling because your instinctual gut feelings aren't instinctual often. They're taught by Christianity a lot of the time. So that's all I'm trying to say. Take your time, think about it, learn about it, look into sex positivity groups. Um, I'm going to go ahead and re- recommend ASPEC if you're in Edmonton, but you can also, if you're not in Edmonton, they have some resources up online, I believe. So look up ASPEC. I'll have a link to it in the description of this podcast. Sort of learn a little bit about sex positivity and the ideology behind it, and then see where you go from there. So yeah, that That's was a long rant. spiel before the thing. Other news <laughs> before we jump into the uh, actual discussion. 
We're going to be talking about, I think, two different emails when we start our Wrecking the Queers section. So get excited for that. If you want to be a part of Wrecking the Queers, feel free to email us at queerhistorypatreon at gmail.com. If you see any errors in the podcast, see anything you don't agree with, think there's anything that you want to bring up for discussion for us to talk about, that's where you talk to us. And yeah, I'm really excited to talk about a couple emails we've gotten lately. Anyways, I talk think... about Don Langley Hall. Yeah, let's talk about it. Let's like, actually jump into this. So, Don Langley Hall was born in 1922 in Kent, England. Mm-hmm. And she was born into a family that I believe her parents were unmarried at the time she was born. Very dramatic. Her mother was Pi Society and her father was a chauffeur for Vita Sackville West. Sackville. Vita Sackville West. That's how you pronounce also, it. Also, side note, how many queer people are attached to Vita Sackville? Because like, at this point, I'm like... How many can there be? Like, did she know any non-queer people? That's my question at this point. Because every queer person from that time period, I, I, I can sometimes, like, find a way traces back to either Vita or Virginia. And I'm like, how did we get here? And Dawn connects to both. Because at some yeah. point, she actually met Virginia Woolf. Yep. And Virginia Woolf wrote this book, Orlando, about Vita. And it apparently also magically ma- almost matches Dawn Langley Hall's life. Mm-hmm. Before it even happened. Adventure. Yeah, so uh, Dawn, I think, talked about that a lot. Yes. She was very excited about it. Mm-hmm. She was raised by her grandma, and I don't really know much more about her childhood. Yeah, her childhood was was not talked about a lot, which is surprising because she was a biographer who wrote three biographies about herself, and there were other biographies written about her as well. So you can tell that her life's going to be a little interesting, and it's going to cause a little bit of a stir, just from that fact. But at least in 1946, she moved to Canada and mm-hmm. lived in an Ojibwe reserve at Lake Nipigon mm-hmm. and worked as a teacher. Mm-hmm. From this experience, she wrote her first book, and it became a bestseller. And this is where we need to talk vaguely about um, white people coming into indigenous spaces and, and writing books things. about their own experiences. I don't even know what the book's about. Um, I haven't read it. I haven't read about it. Mm-hmm. Um, it did really well, but it's always uh, interesting. It's always interesting. Um, so I know, just from my own life experience, not to talk about my life this entire time, but I recently got catfished by a book where it was about an Indigenous experience of residential schools. It's about an Indigenous person. It's based on a real life event that happened within Canada in relation to residential schools. If you don't know what residential schools are, in Canada, residential schools were schools that were created to take Indigenous students from their family or Indigenous children from their family, remove their culture, and replace it with white culture instead. Uh, Cutting their hair, forcing them to unlearn their own language and learn a new one, forcing them to become Christian, generally Catholic, or Protestant, and there's a lot of history of of sexual assault and abuse that went on there. So this book was a book sort of about one child's experience um, in in a residential school. And I read it and I was like, okay, this was a good book. I enjoyed it. Um, There's something that feels like a little off to me. I don't know what it is. So... Maybe, maybe the author is an indigenous, I don't know. So I, I read the author's note and it's like, oh no, they are indigenous. Okay, no worries. I, I, you know, I don't have experience in every aspect of indigeneity. I'm a very white person. So, you know, I'm not gonna, like, clearly I'm wrong here. I post a book review later and someone comments, oh, this guy was actually faking being indigenous. <laughs> so that his, like, voice in indigenous discussions would be listened to more. And I'm like, <sighs> 
All right. So, I don't know. I'm feeling real bitter towards white people coming into indigenous spaces and being like, I am the authority. Because, to be fair, Don Langley Hall didn't say that she was indigenous at any point. She did not. But I just really want to point out again that we should be prioritizing indigenous voices when it comes to indigenous stories. Not white voices. Oh dear. Oh dear. Yeah. That was an adventure. Will yeah. Will had to deal with me for like the next three days. Being like, I can't believe I got catfished like this for the second time because this has happened to me before. Men really, white cisgender men really do be catfishing me. They really constantly. do. Constantly. Specifically about books. Specifically about books. And it's so annoying because my brain is like, there's something wrong. I don't know what it is, but there's something uncomfortable here. And I don't trust it because I read the author's note and I'm like, ooh, who would lie? Who would lie about something like that? Who would like to sell a book? Men. Men would like to sell a book. <laughs> because, you know, they can't trust that their writing's good enough. And to be fair, their writing wasn't good enough. It didn't convince me. Like, I was like, there's something off here. So, like, to be fair, they're right. Their writing isn't good enough to stand on its own. But they are still catfishing me. And if you're wondering who the other author was, it's Riley Sager. If this is this is not an indigenous conversation, this is specifically he writes about women's issues under a unisex name that is not his name, specifically to trick women into picking up his books. He tricked me. And I was like, ooh, this doesn't seem like an authentic woman experience. Weird. And I put the book down. Then later I was like, that's not a woman who wrote it. That would be why. That would be why. Interesting. Why do you really do that? Because, you know, the writing's just not that good. Anyways, I'm going to be really bitter about it because I've, I've gotten catfished twice now and I'm mad. But anyways, after writing this this bestseller uh, that I'm a little unsure about. Uh, yeah, it's shaky ground. Yeah, Don moved into Winnipeg and worked as an editor for a while mm-hmm. before moving back to England and teaching theater in mm-hmm. Surrey. So after living in England again for a couple of years, she moved to the state. She worked as an editor in Missouri for a while and then moved into New York to again work as an editor. Uh, this is also where she met Isabel Whitney, who became one of her closest friends over the next couple of years. And she lived in New York writing biographies and forming all these really nice friendships with people. Mm-hmm. And one of these other people were Margaret Rutherford. I'm so excited for this part. She was an actress and she originally reached out to Dawn because she wanted to make a movie adaption of the book she wrote that was based off of her experiences in the Ojibwe Reserve. And then instead they just became really close and Margaret Rutherford and her husband unofficially adopted her. Which is so sweet. And also considering that in childhood Dawn would describe her childhood as like sort of disconnected from her parents and and not really feeling connected to them at all. Having that adoption later in life is, is such a great story and I'm really excited for the next part of that story because yeah some some nice they're just really great parents in my opinion. They're really great parents. And it was around this time that Don and Isabel Whitney uh, decided they would like to move to Charleston. Together. Yeah. And unfortunately, Isabel, before they were able to move, did die and left all things to Don, which gave her not only society connections now, but a little bit of money. So she, she had, entered Charleston she, ready to go. She had a house. She had about, I think, $2 million was mm-hmm. the amount that I read. And yes, yeah, so she just started working on restoring this house that was in Charleston's 
queer village. Amazing. And, and sort of like the, the vibe of the queer village at the time was a little bit like, you can exist as queer, just really don't let people see. You know, if you're a gay man, you need to be married and have kids. Like, you, you can be queer, but sort of shut up about it. And yeah, that's it didn't jive well with Don Langley's life as she was a transgender woman. And only a couple of years after moving to Charleston, mm-hmm. she went through a gender confirmation surgery. Mm-hmm. And that also did not jive well with Char- Charleston. Because, you know, it was very open it was a, like a very brave stance and um yeah some people did not react well to that she actually did a couple of things at the same time she she had gender confirmation surgery she got married to a black man and the last thing that sort of pushed everyone over the edge was that her story made national headlines it was a well-known story and newspapers wanted to talk about the fact that she had gotten gender confirmation surgery which is not her own fault it, it it's sort of was a little bit out of her control but people wanted to talk about it, and that was sort of the thing that the charleston queer community was very scared of because the queer community in charleston was the common norms were that you could be be queer you could be gay as long as you were married and appeared hetero heterosexual mm-hmm. and you know um she went to Johns Hopkins Hospital and got gender confirmation surgery and brought a lot of news into the town. And it didn't really go well. Like, hers was actually the first uh, interracial marriage in South Carolina with uh, a man. John Paul uh, Simmons. Yes. And they got name. married in 1969. And uh, they ended up getting married in their drawing room i believe because yeah. the church they had decided to get married in got bomb uh, threats got, got bomb threats and also after a separate celebration in england when they returned they had a crate full of their wedding gift this crate got firebombed and then later because the the record from it was obstructing the sidewalk mm-hmm. they got ticketed <sighs> yep that makes sense anyways cops aren't our friends yeah <laughs> Um, but an important thing to note that er, during all this time, Don did have a very supportive family, including Margaret Rutherford, who upon Don coming out as a transgender woman said, we had three adopted sons and one adopted daughter. Now we have two of each. And that's really sweet. And also uh, there's another quote from her letter in response to Don coming out. Our love for you will never change, be assured of this. Which, if that doesn't warm your heart, I, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. Let's also talk about the fact that when Margaret Rutherford got the news that her adoptive daughter was marrying a black man, she said, oh, I'm fine with that. I'm a little disappointed that he's a Baptist. Which, fair. I would be too. <laughs> Not based on the Baptist, but based on the Christian. So yeah, um, she was... Blessed with having really good supportive family and friends. And also her the hospital was supportive of her decision, which was not something everyone could say. And they were also even something that I could say would almost be as important as that they were quiet. They didn't just like give as many, you know, interviews as they could. Uh, spokesmen of John Hopkins Hospital only said... Miss Hall was a patient. Miss Hall underwent surgery, and they would not comment any further. So, like, so amazing. medical privacy, which is a basic thing to a lot of people, but to transgender people, it's something that's not often respected. So, it is good to hear that, like, they gave her that. She deserved that. 
She really did. She had some good things. There were some really, really rough things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then in 1971, they got a daughter, Mm -hmm. Natasha. Dawn, you know, put a pillow under her shirt and and pretended to be pregnant. But Natasha was the biological daughter of one of Dawn's husband's mistresses. And they took care of her, though, like she was their own daughter. And Dawn adored this child. I believe Natasha also believed that Dawn was her biological mother yes coming to that there is sort of a couple different forms of information around what dawn's assigned gender at birth was sometimes people saying that she was intersex some people saying a lot of different things dawn herself says that she said she was intersex Mm -hmm. there are some other biographies written about her that Mm -hmm. claim differently Mm -hmm. it's sort of hard to tell because dawn very frankly was trying to be safe at that moment. It wasn't about giving the most authentic, truthful version of yourself like we do now. It's about safety. It's about what could get her safe the fastest. And in that time, she she sort of tried to, and this isn't saying she wasn't intersex, but at the very least, it would be understandable if she was using that as an excuse to be transgender, as her safety was obviously a really important factor in her life at the time, because there were attacks on her, and people were less distressed when it was an intersex person transitioning into a different gender than when it was a parasex person. And I believe there have been similar stories that we talk about, about trans people Mm -hmm. who go through some type of gender confirmation, who also later allude to or talk about having been born intersex. Or, you know, some cases that identity is forced upon them. A lot of transgender people throughout history have been told to be intersex, even though there's no real evidence of it. Mm -hmm. It, It's sort of a a complex issue. I don't want to dive too deep into it because I'm not an intersex person myself. I'm parasex. But... (laughs) Yeah, it's possible it was true. It's also possible it's not. I I don't think it matters too much either way outside of her own identification. I couldn't confidently classify her as intersex, but I'm not saying it's impossible. It doesn't really matter either way. Either way, you know, Natasha was not biologically her child. Yeah. But she raised Natasha. Unfortunately, she was in the position of having to divorce her husband as he had become abusive and was cheating on her. And yeah, there was a divorce. She tried her best to, you know, keep it as civil as possible, giving him access to Natasha still. But, you know, obviously violence is a hard thing to move fast. Domestic violence is a hard thing to deal with in a divorce, especially when it comes to children. She also had to end up moving from Charleston because of some bad experiences. And she lived in Hudson for a long part of her life. Yeah. Before later moving back to Charleston again to live Mm -hmm. with her daughter and grandchildren. Where she eventually died of Parkinson's, I believe? Yeah, Parkinson's disease in 2000. Okay, yeah. And she died surrounded by her daughter. And her family. Her family. Which is something that is really nice to hear from history about a transgender person. Because that's something that a lot of people have been denied, very frankly. So yeah, she had family that adored her. And while she had ups and downs in her life, she ended her life and happily in love. Which is, I think, all anyone can ask for, right? Yeah, it really is. All right, so that is the story of Don Langley Hall. Yeah, I don't think there's much else to say there. Now we're going to move into the third section of our podcast, which is Wrecking the Queers, where you recommend things and you wreck us. So I will start with recommending things. Will, what do you want to recommend? Today I'm recommending you all a graphic novel. It's not a book. It's a graphic novel. <laughs> it's called On a Sunbeam by Tilly Walden. <laughs> And it is absolutely gorgeous, a really emotional experience. I read it in one run sitting in the bath. Incredible. Um, The art is gorgeous. The color work is so beautiful. Like, 
it's almost entirely, I wouldn't say black and white, but like the colors are used very cleverly mm -hmm. in, 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 in only very specific instances, which yeah. means that you get a very experience out of it. Yeah. Also, representation. There are no men in the story. They don't even mention it. They're like, no men exist almost? Mm -hmm. I don't know. But there are no men in the story. There are only queer people. Mm -hmm. And there's also a non-binary character. And everyone just uses their pronouns. There's like a little introduction about it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's one character who does not use their pronouns, actually. Uh, but... They Which get. I think is realistic. I, I think that sometimes we give, especially women, too much credit but, on, on transgender but issues. she gets yelled at. Good. As she should. So, like, it is also, like, about space mm -hmm. and spaceships. Amazing. And about a crew who restores historical buildings. Oh, this is amazing. This is perfect. And there's also a planet uh, where the entire aesthetic is just, like, cowboys mm -hmm. in space amazing mm -hmm. there are some really really sweet romances like i cried I uh, there's an entire found family thing yeah it's just a really really good graphic novel by <laughs> tilly walden check it out i found it on my local library on their libby app yeah i believe they also have a lot of libraries will also have a physical version you can also read it online it exists as a web comic so it's called on a sunbeam you can find it, I believe, the website is literally on a sunbeam.com. Read Perfect. it. Simple. It is absolutely gorgeous, and I cannot recommend it enough. Nice. Okay, so next we're going to move into the You Wrecking Us, and we got a couple emails to talk about today. First email comes from Allie, they, them, theirs, pronoun. This is the email. I'm just going to read it out, and we're going to talk a little bit about it. Hi, I read the contributions from Daria Kent on early asexual feminists. I wanted to ask what the right thing to do when quoting from historians who are well known for being viscerally transphobic. Sheila Jeffries is well known for contributing heavily to the transphobic media atmosphere of the UK, and it feels a little disingenuous to quote from her work on a site about queer history without making mention of these views and how they affect her work. I also note that you touched on Oscar Wilde's anti-Semitism in another article, but considering the links that would age gap relationships are discussed and pedophilia are discussed in the article on his trials, why were his travels to Morocco not mentioned? Acquiring underage sexual partners for friends is surely relevant here. I guess it feels like with Oscar Wilde, his trials are a very well-known part of his story, and the site seems to have more of a focus on parts of queer history that are more easily forgotten. And you don't seem to shy away from other uncomfortable parts of queer people's lives in articles such as Leslie Hutchinson's numerous affairs. So I think this is a really interesting criticism and a good one. And I was really happy to get it in. So let's deconstruct it a bit. First on the quote, because let's, let's divide it into two parts. First on the quote. The quote from Sheila, whatever the, her name, Je Sheila Jeffries. She's a transphobic woman and a really shitty person. And unfortunately there's not much we can do when quoting someone to give content warnings if the person is a shitty person because realistically how are we gonna manage that like as we've already discussed in numerous episodes everyone's problematic in their own way so when do we mention it how do we mention it what is the line that we draw i don't think it's a accessible way to deal with these kind of issues ideally we wouldn't have to quote anyone who is shitty but unfortunately, a lot of shitty people's views are relevant to our discussions, Sheila Jeffries included. I didn't actually know Sheila Jeffries was transphobic. I don't know who Sheila Jeffries is outside of when this person brought it up and 
after that, the research that went into that. So I'm not going to pretend like I knew this and I made the really conscious decision of not including this information. I didn't. This was someone else's article and I didn't look up everyone who was quoted within it. But I also, I really understand why that'd be an upsetting thing to read, to like see someone who is, you know is transphobic and shitty on a website that you are going to because it's queer friendly and because it feels like a safe space. I wish there was a really, really good solution for this. And if anyone has one, it's like, oh, this is the perfect way to deal with it. Please send us in. But the big problem is like, there is no clear line there. Do we mention whenever we quote Magnus Hirschfeld that he participated in human zoos? Like he, he, gave money to human zoos so he could experiment on black women. Do we mention that every time we talk about Magnus Hirschfeld? Do we talk about every single bad thing a person does? Is it a list? Is it in like, do we use acronyms? I don't know how we'd realistically do it. And with content warning, something that's hugely, hugely important to me is having consistency. I say that having not ac accidentally not mentioned that we were, that we we're gonna mention Oscar Wilde and sort of like a discussion around sexual assault against children. So content warning's going here. I'll put a content warning at the description of the podcast and hopefully you will have seen that. Anyways, but content warnings are really important to get consistently because if you do it once, if you give one content warning, then people start trusting you to have it every time. And then if you miss it one time, then you'll have put that person in that situation. Like it will have been more or less, you've catfished them into thinking they're safe and then you didn't follow up on that. And I'm not sure how we could consistently put that idea into practice. If anyone has any ideas on how we could put that sort of theory into practice, I would be really interested in hearing them. I think it'd be a valuable thing to add to our thing. But practically, I'm not sure how it would work. And I can't see a way. That doesn't mean there isn't one though. So again, please do send us in an email if you can think of a way that would work. Now, let's discuss Oscar Wilde. Okay, honestly though, I almost wish I hadn't ever written an article about Oscar Wilde because uh, it's difficult. It's it's probably one of the more controversial people to talk about within queer history. And honestly, I'm going to be like really frank with y'all. I don't care about Oscar Wilde that much. I think he was a shitty person who did shitty things and wrote some good things sometimes. And if I had the chance to rewrite that article, it probably wouldn't come down as favorably on his side. The more I've learned about him, the less I've liked him. And I want to be completely honest in that and not pretend that like I, I made these decisions with like huge galaxy brain knowledge on, on Oscar Wilde because I knew what the information had, had been given to me and what information was accessible. And I found information more as I moved on. I had a week to write an article about a person that I already sort of knew about. And I took a week to do that research. And then I wrote an article. There are things about his life that I didn't know. I actually think I did know the Morocco fact before I wrote the article though. So that that's in a unique position. See, the thing is, I didn't write the discussion of age gap relationships. Like you'll see a paragraph discussing sort of what my feelings are on people discussing Oscar Wilde as a person who might be a pedophile. To be honest, I, I want to be really frank. Again, content warnings, I really, if you want to step out, step out. I didn't write that in the original article. I wrote a reaction instead to something that he mentioned when he said, when he mentioned age gaps as a natural part of queer relationships. I was like, that's how sort of queer relationships were talked about at the time. And then later I went back. And the reason I went back is because we were one of the first Google results when someone would look up and we were we are still constantly clicked on when someone looks up Oscar Wilde pedophile. We are one of the first results and we're the one that everyone clicks on. And 
I wanted to have a decent answer. And I didn't include the Morocco fact because I wasn't thinking about that because I was solely thinking about, I want a complete answer for the people who come from that search. And I don't think that Oscar Wilde is a pedophile. I, I think that he was a bad person who enabled his friend's pedophilia. 100% the Morocco thing, he helped people be pedophiles. And that's a horrible, horrible thing. And if I wrote an article about him now, I would discuss it more. And I am considering going back and adding that to the article. I'm, I'm not sure yet. And something that I think is sort of important to mention as we have this discussion is that the articles that I write really should not be taken as your last step in researching. I think it can be your last step in researching a person. You can look at their life, our little overview and be like, I'm not really interested in that person. I'm done. But if you're going to have discussions on that person, I want our article to be a part of a long bit of research you do. Because we're not going to give you every piece of information about anyone's life. And sometimes we're going to give you the better ones instead of the worst ones. And the reason for that exclusively is because I read about their life and these were the parts that I was interested in. That's it. That's the only reason I talk about Leslie Hutchinson having so many affairs because I got really interested in the different ways he was treated as a black man who had many affairs versus the way one of the women he had affairs with who was a white woman got treated. And I wanted to discuss sort of the dynamic there. That's why I talked about that more. There are a lot of other aspects of his life that I could have talked about, including his version of a song that includes many slurs for many different races. Like if you look him up on Spotify, one of his top songs includes multiple slurs for multiple different races that he is not a part of. What I'm saying is we're not gonna be able to include everything. We don't have the time, we don't have the resources, we don't have the inclination. I, that's not what I want our project to be. So I really, we like talking about the uncomfortable parts and this is a part of the reason why the podcast exists at all, right? We have the podcast so we can talk a little bit more more about the things that we've learned since we wrote the article and also things that we weren't able to include in the article. This is why we're here. But we will never be able to give you a complete history of a person. And I'm not sorry for that. That's not what this project's for. And I hope that clears things up a little bit. We will try our best when we can to give as much of a person as we can. But sometimes you're faced with this thing where people are like, well, you know, you need to include every bad thing they did. And I'm like, how? How do you expect a 1000 word article or like a 1,500 word generally is the length of our article to, to include every bad thing while also including any other information for some people's life, especially Oscar Wilde. And yeah, I think it's a reaction to the a reaction to the reaction of people seeing history as being too positive and giving these people too much leeway, like people not talking about Oscar Wilde's anti-Semitism and not talking about Oscar Wilde, like any of his negative traits, which he has many of, to be clear. But I also don't think it's 100% possible to view any source as something that can provide you any everything about a, a person. And I think I, again, have to encourage everyone to use us as a, a first source. I really want to give you the tools to find a story that interests you and follow that thread. I think that's incredible, engaging and rewarding experience to go through as a queer person. And that's what I want to give you. So that's sort of my response to that email. I also sent them an email in response as well. Yeah, Allie's a great person. They're fantastic. And yeah, very legitimate criticisms. I think I, I, I'm at the point where I think I'm going to add Morocco to the discussion of Oscar Wilde because so many people come to our website for a discussion of age gaps in relation to Oscar Wilde. I think I will add that. But again, I really need to emphasize that we cannot have everything in an article. We just, that's not reasonable. 
for the limitations of this project that exists. So yeah, that's the first email. And now we have another email. Okay, so the next email is about uh, Ella Gabalas. The name is Sam and the pronouns are she, her. Hi there, my name is Sam and I'm from the Netherlands. I was planning on listening to your podcast and found an episode which dealt with the subject of my bachelor's thesis. Super awesome, of course, but I was a little disappointed because during the episode, you didn't explain why you assume Ella Gabalas was trans. My thesis is that she was trans and I want to research this using secondary and primary sources and using a survey which I want to distribute to trans people in which I explain what the sources say and what I think is true. Because of my academic interest in this subject, I wanted to ask on which sources you based your statement of El Gabalas being trans. I feel like it's a delicate subject because femininity was a lot of times seen as a bad thing in an antiquity. And I'm researching whether Cassius Dio, who said... Ella Gabalas wanted to pay for a vulva was mocking Ella Gabalas or whether he told the truth. It is rather difficult to find the truth though because a lot of historians at the time were writing down a lot of gossip. Hopefully you can help me a little bit with my subject. Thank you very much in advance for replying. So thank you for sending in that email Sam. Very much appreciate it. And I think you bring up a good point. We didn't really talk about the explanation as to why I thought Ella Gabalas was trans. For one, the reason to that is that we talk about it a lot more in the article. And these podcast episodes are supposed to be a companion to the article. So the article is a part of this. But in the article, we also don't talk about it too explicitly either. So I think it's uh, now is a really great time to talk about it. I think <laughs> Ella Gavales is trans because through the sources I read, her being a woman was used in ways that were not stereotypical of femininity at the time. I'm not sure if that makes sense, but my, cause I actually went through the exact same uh, thought process as you, you were talking about of maybe they were just calling her a girl as an insult. Like, cause as we talked about during the podcast, a lot of her life was gossip and rumor since it was so long ago. And a lot of historians, what have historians have written down is based on gossip and rumor. And to be clear, there were different versions of stereotypical femininity at the time than there is now. But what I know of stereotypical femininity for the time, a lot of what is discussed around her does not fit what stereotypical femininity is understood as. And when people are gossiping and making fun of someone for being womanly, they usually lean on and press against sort of the stereotypical markers of femininity, which were not often what was pressed on with Elagabalus. One of the big things is Elagabalus took a lot of control in her sexuality. And that was something that was discussed a lot. And that's not something that people would, I don't think would highlight as much as they did if there was no, if what they were doing was exclusively trying to sort of twist the truth into saying that she was like a woman as an insult. I also think that uh, it's sort of hard, hard to explain because a lot of this is very in-depth conversation and I want to keep this, you know, accessible. I also think there's a lot of sources that I trust that I researched in that had a lengthy discussion of why they thought that Elagabalus was trans and those are linked in the article about Elagabalus and very frankly I just read it and that experience resonated with me. I was like yes this is fits into what transness is and what I understand it as and I might be wrong so and that's a fair discussion to have. I also think it's a good discussion to have to sort of 
bring up that a lot of the times on our podcast and on our in our articles, we don't really talk about the evidence why someone was queer. In our first articles, I think we did a lot. I think that was the main focus. But as I've gotten further and further into this job, the less interested I have become on justifying why I think someone's queer. Some of that is because there have been some really obvious people, some people that no one's contesting that I've talked about. Like no one's out there being like, Oscar Wilde was a straight boy. But <laughs> there are some that, that are sort of contested. And I do discuss it sometimes, but I think the further I go into this work, the less interested I am with justifying why I think someone was queer because I no longer come at it from a point of trying to convince people that people in history are queer. That's no longer my goal. My goal has become, has shifted since the beginning from I want to convince people that these people are queer to I want to give queer people stories from their history. And I'm not, I like that goal now. I like that goal better. I don't want to switch back to convincing people that certain people were straight or queer or, or trans or whatever. I will definitely talk about it if I think that there's enough discussion about it not being true to warrant that discussion. But generally, I think I'm happy with the focus changing a little bit. But I also understand and wanting to talk about that more, which is why I read the email out on the podcast instead of just answering them personally. And I also, I think straightness is assumed and... Sometimes I want to assume queerness. I assumed queerness when I started looking at El Gabalas and everything I read reinforced that assumption. That's it. That's sort of the big anticlimactic true reason behind it. And I think just sort of that on its own is a twisting of the heteronormative structure that exists within history. And I think that perspective is worth talking about in history. In entering a life, assuming a person's queer, I think that's an interesting thing to look at. Juvenating. It is. It gives me life. And a lot of the time I have entered a discussion thinking someone was queer and have been proven wrong. I have actually put away more articles than y'all will ever know. Because I got halfway into researching and I was like, wait, I'm not actually sure this person's queer. All right, I'm going to put this away. I think my most on the line article was Yosana Akiko, who I wrote about recently. Because I'm like, it's very possible she wasn't queer. But I think it's a bit more likely that she was. The one article that I also wrote about Yunusana Yunusana <laughs> falls in the same category of like, I agree. Mm, he could have been. And he could have not have been. But it's fun to assume queerness. It's fun to assume queerness. And I think it's radical to assume queerness. And I also think that it's not harmful to assume queerness. Assuming queerness is harmful when queerness is seen as a negative trait. That being said, this only applies to dead people. Assuming queerness on people who actually exist can hurt people. If you, um, I'm talking specifically about you fuckers who will not stop talking about Sean Mendez's sexuality. Leave him alone. If he's queer, all you're doing is trying to out him. You realize this, right? If he's not queer, you're just being rude and treating queerness like a stereotype. So just leave it alone. Don't, uh, don't try to force people to come out, please. <laughs> just, just leave it. That being said, that's not what we're supposed to be talking about. But yeah, those were the two emails we got in. And yeah, I think they both bring up some really interesting points and I hope you were able to expand on them a little bit more here. If y'all have any responses to that, please do email us at careerhistorypatreon at gmail.com. You should also check out our website, www.makingcareerhistory.com, where you can find all our social medias. We have a Twitter, a Facebook, a Tumblr, a Instagram, a Pinterest. 
That's all I can think of. You can also find our store. You can also find our store where you can buy really cute things. And I'm going to give you some spoilers. There are some really cute things coming out soon. And finally, if you like this podcast, if you want this podcast to continue existing into the future and want us to continue being able to make articles and make history even queerer by assuming queerness, please do check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash queerhistory. We're really lucky to have a really great group there and we're, yeah, no, I'm just really excited about our Patreon. We've had some really good moments lately. Great things are coming. Great things are always coming. And Will Will, Will was listening to some of the podcast episodes earlier because there were a couple of mistakes that we needed to fix really quickly or try our best to fix. And what was the quote that you found? You can, you can ballpark what it was. It you don't was at uh, the episode that we had at the end of 2019 yeah. and, and it was pretty much just like 2020 will be a year of rest because 2019 really kicked some butt. Yes. Yes. Um, so, um, sorry my prediction was so false, but also please take your time to rest. You deserve it. You deserve it as a queer person. You deserve it as a non-queer person. You deserve it as whatever you are. You deserve some rest right now. Give it to yourself as a gift from me. Drink some water. Please. Take a nap. If you're wearing a binder, either cough or take it off for at least an hour or two. Do some stretches. Yeah. I was going to say drink some water again. Yeah. Stay hydrated. Stay hydrated. Don't overhydrate though. Be careful. Get some fresh air mm-hmm. if you can. Eat some food that you know will make you feel better instead of food that you want. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. That's all I got for you. Care Thank you yourselves. so much for hanging out with us today and talking with us about talking to us. <laughs> we we heard your thoughts the entire time. It was a good ride. It was a good thank ride. Thank you for your thoughts. Thank you for your thoughts and thank you for your time. I hope you get to spend a lot of your upcoming time doing things that make you happy and give you rest. So, yeah. Thank you so much for everyone who supports us. Yeah. All right. Thank you, everyone. And remember, history is queerer than you think. We have always existed and we are still here. Telling the stories of those slumbered, we won't disappear. We're taking the pen into our own hands We live and we breathe and we keep creating Taking a stand History is queerer than you think Yes, we will continue Yes, we will improve Making history is just what we do Yes, we will keep growing Every step we're taking is history in the making. We hold our own future, we learn from the past. They've tried to remove our legacy, but we are built to last. So listen to the stories. Cause they'll help us grow From Sappho to Frida Kahlo There's always more to know History is queerer than you think Yes, we will continue Yes, we will improve Making history is just what we do Yes, we will keep growing Every step we're taking is history in the making. <laughs>
today, tomorrow we have been and will always be. Have some.